0: If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. Picking up where we left off last week in our series, going through the book of 1 Peter, uh, we ended chapter 3 last week. This week will be in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1 and going through to verse 6. It should be on the screen behind me if you don't have that in your Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1, says this, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Taylor Swift, this past summer, put on what she called the Eras Tour. It's likely going to be the the biggest tour in history, the biggest music tour in history, making over a billion dollars. And that's just the money that's associated directly with her that she has made by doing this. It's estimated that through the economic impact of her visiting the towns that she has gone to, that she has added $5 billion to the economy through those towns. So She is single-handedly having huge impacts on the cities she visits just by the sheer size and focus and uh, magnificent scale to the the tour that she is putting on, the era's tour. Uh, There's now a movie. This last weekend that came out, so that's just the, the whole concert, just three and a half hours, they filmed the concert, and they're putting it in theaters, and it has set a record for pre-sale tickets. I, I read this morning that it actually is the second largest October uh, gross weekend ever. Just the movie of her concert. That's how much money is being generated just by Taylor Swift putting on her concert. Our economy is in its Swifty era. The tour is called The Era's Tour because she's treating each of her albums as an era of her life. The early records when she was acting like a country music singer, fake accent and all, uh, learning to find herself and growing up, that was her early era, her Taylor Swift era, those albums. Uh, Then we see a softer side with her pandemic albums, Folklore and Evermore. Her transition into pop music with the 89 era, the year year of her birth. Uh, A darker side in her reputation era. And I know uh, that this is way more than any of you thought I knew about Taylor Swift. And I know this is all things that uh, you guys know already about Taylor Swift. I know as I look out at our church, at our congregation, that I see just Swifties as far as the eye can see. That's all of you guys are with me in that same boat. And I've got to say it really is a shame that my wife is out of town this week because I owe it all to her. Uh, All of the Taylor Swift knowledge I have, I have gotten through my wife because of my wife. She is a huge Swifty and has brought me along with her in that. And uh, she would be so proud (laughs) of this introduction. Uh, The one week that I really, I think, would have her attention, that she would love this one more than any others, is the the one week that she misses. But Taylor Swift in her tour uh, is reflecting on the eras of her life. And Peter, in this text, I think is showing us the eras of the Christian life. In today's passage, we'll see three eras in the Christian life from First Peter 4, 1 through 6. The first era in the Christian life that we see in today's text is the passionless present. We who are in Christ are supposed to be living a passionless present. Look at the first two verses there. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Based on the suffering of Christ for us, which brought us to God through the gospel, we now are supposed to conform our lives to the same pattern of Christ's living. And that begins here by arming ourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ had. This is pointing back, I think, to verse 17, Uh, In chapter 3, the way of Christ, the way of thinking that Christ had, Christ was of the mindset in his life that it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It was that belief that enabled him to suffer once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the good suffering in the will of God that he might bring us to God. So the way we are to think is by taking that same thought that same value system to ourselves. We have to actually believe what it says there, that suffering for doing good is better, especially if it's the route through which someone else may be brought to God as we were. Again, Peter's saying that your suffering isn't ultimately about you. You're not the main character in this story of the the suffering that you're experiencing. It feels that way when you encounter it. It feels like this is the primary conflict in the movie of your life. But I think we have to get past that idea. We have to stop seeing ourselves as the main character and start to have the perspective that whatever suffering we experience, particularly if we suffer for doing Christian good, it's better. It's worth it if God uses it for his purposes. And God uses all things for his purposes. But notice the verb here in that verse arm yourselves with this way of thinking. He's introducing the language of battle here that when you encounter persecution you're headed into war in one sense. You need a weapon. But you're not armed with smart bombs or AKs. You're you're armed with the knowledge that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And I want to be very clear here that the verse isn't saying that you will never sin again after you've suffered in the flesh in your life. It's not saying that the one who has suffered is now perfect, as if we're all just waiting for suffering to happen so that then we'll nail it, so that then we'll be perfect from that point on. We're waiting for the cancer diagnosis so that whenever we get it into remission now, perfection is what we have to look forward to. That's not what Peter's saying here. It's saying that when you've made up your mind, when you have determined that suffering in the flesh is part of your obedience to God, in the will of God, when you've come to the decision and had the experience that no matter what this world has to throw at you, no matter what you might have to endure, it's all worth it if God uses it for his purposes. You're free. There's nothing this world can do to you. There's nothing your former life can call you back to. You are so sold out to the God who has saved you that you are willing to endure anything in the pursuit of his will, of what he has for you. The suffering is no longer suffering, it's obedience. The trials you experience, they aren't a test. They're a blessing. Your perseverance, it it, it isn't iffy. It's the means to the end of the salvation of your oppressor. You're not ruled by sin anymore. You're not ruled by the fear of man anymore. I mean, what is man? What can he do to you? Suffering is now light and momentary affliction. Like Paul, they beat you, then you're filling up the afflictions of Christ. They throw throw you in jail, then you're gonna convert the guards. You don't have time to be ruled by sin. You are completely, totally focused and sold out for the sake of the gospel. So now, for the rest of your days, For the rest of your time in the flesh, as verse 2 says, you live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You've mastered your passions and conformed them through the way of thinking that you've armed yourself with. You now value what God values. You want what he wants. You live how Christ lived. Your singular focus for the rest of your days is seeing the will of God realized in every area of your life. John Wick, in his movies, they they say this about him several times, that he is a man of focus, determination, and sheer will. They say this about him in, I think, every movie, that he is the boogeyman, he is the scary one who is going to come and kill you, not because he's invincible, not because he has superpowers, but because he just doesn't stop until he's accomplished his goal. From the time that he suffered the death of his wife and dog until he kills the men responsible for that, He is only focused on that one goal, that one objective. And I think that's how we are to view the Christian life here. Our life is split into eras. And now that we are in the passionless present, killing those old passions, that is our singular focus. That is the one goal of our life. That's where all of our determination and will gets put forward to. The human passions that used to exert their control over you, they just don't anymore. They can't anymore. That doesn't mean that you have no passion for the gospel, no passion for for life, no love of life. That's not what I mean by passionless, as if it were completely without passion. I mean it's without sinful passion. It's without the human passions that used to drive you and control you when you were living in your passionate past. That's the the second era of the Christian life that we see in today's text. You used to live in a passionate past. Look at verses 3 and 4. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. See, this was the era that you came out of. This is the era where you did what you wanted. When you were a slave to your sin and you enjoyed it. You liked the sin that was actually killing you, and you indulged in it. His point here is that you used to engage in that kind of behavior, and you actually did it more than enough. You've sinned more than you should have in your lifetime already. So now the time has come to transition from the passionate past, when you were ruled by your passions, to the passionless present, when you deny your former passions and lusts. Paul makes a similar point in Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He's saying, no, 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 you've sinned enough. you sinned more than enough. No sin is acceptable So whatever you've already done is more than should have been done. So don't run back to that same lifestyle. And I think we can all acknowledge that that is true. We've sinned more than enough. Our sins were more than we should have been forgiven for. Our sins were more than anyone should have partaken in. We should be able to look back at our former life, at our former ways, at those times in our life when we were indulging in these sins, and be able to say, man, that was way more than what, what should have happened. I should have repented long before I did. And that's the point that Peter's making, that no, 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 the time that has passed suffices for that. Leave that in the past. You don't need to carry that forward into your present Peter uses Gentile language here as a shorthand for unbelievers, as he's kind of done throughout this book of 1 Peter, that you used to live like everyone else around you, but now you're to stop indulging those passions because you've had your fill. You've experienced those things and you found that they don't actually satisfy, that they don't bring glory to God. They don't please him. They aren't actually what you want whenever you get down to it either. He highlights some specific sins here that they're committing that we should avoid. But notice that he says they aren't just doing these things. He doesn't just give a list of sins and say they're doing these things, you shouldn't do them with them. He's saying that the, the things that unbelievers are doing are things that they are living in. These are the things the unbelievers want to do. That they're so steeped in these sins that they're living in a state of those sins. That their whole lives are marked by these sins. And I can remember periods in my life where I was caught in sins like these. I can remember the times when I indulged in sinful behavior and did it so much that it felt like that sin was part of who I just was. It felt like this is just what I do. I'm never going to get past this. I'm never going to stop doing this. This is who I am. And that's what it looks like to live in these sins that you don't have a concept of life apart from these sins. My free time was marked by these sins. I'd spend time thinking about the next time I'd be able to run back to that sin again. I adjusted my schedule, my habits, so that I'd be able to keep doing it as long as possible, as much as possible. It's not just committing sins, it's living in them. You're ruled by your passions whenever you're in that state that whatever you desire, whatever you're running after, that is what marks the rest of your life. That's what everything is patterned around. And you're living in them. And even if you don't feel like you're caught in them to that extent, that means you're living in them and you're just unaware that you're living in them. But that suffices for what is past. Peter tells us to keep these passionate sins in the past. He says to put away our sensuality. That's a a fairly generic term that's just talking about a wide range of sexual behavior. It's a lifestyle that is marked by lust. It can't control its eyes. It can't control its hands. It is always surrounded by a lifestyle of sexual sin. Passions, that's similar language, but I think it's widening the frame a little bit to include non-sexual sins here as well. There's definitely a sexual tone here in these sins, really the whole list. But Peter isn't only talking about sexual immorality as if that's the sum total of the sins that these people are surrounded by. He's making the point that when you're ruled by your passions, no sin is outside the realm of possibility for you. You are only a half step away from everything when you're allowing yourself to be ruled by or indulge in anything. And I think drunkenness makes that same point. It's highlighted here not because it's so especially evil, but because it's the gateway to so much evil. The man who is blackout drunk is capable of almost anything. There's nothing he won't do. He is entirely ruled by his passions because he is not in the right state of his mind. There is no way to live a life of drunkenness and not be ruled by your passions. All the drunk man has is his passions. And let me note here that the the text is talking about drunkenness, not drinking across the board. Out of wisdom, yes, maybe it might be best for you to avoid alcohol completely because the one way to make sure that you never get drunk is to never have a drink. That, That makes sense. That's logical. But Peter isn't focused on the use of alcohol. He's focused on the abuse of alcohol. Drunkenness specifically is what has to be avoided here. And the original word here for orgies is almost always in scripture tied to drunkenness, that those two terms are brought together almost every time you see one of these lists that features either one of them. And I think it's illustrating the point that I just made, that when everyone is drunk, when you get a group of people drunk together, there's nothing that can't happen. Particularly for people who are ruled by their passions when sober, when drunk, those passions all come together as a group to form a mass of sin an entanglement of passion. And it's likely that the the next prohibition here is providing the context for these other sins, no drinking parties. He's saying don't even get in the setting where these things might be able to happen. Your Bible might say carousing here or something similar, something along those lines. Peter's really hammering home the idea that a lifestyle of sex and drink that is indulged in by a group of people, that is the setting for all kinds of sins to occur. There is no such thing as a harmless indulgence, particularly when you get a group of people in that state with you. Because these people in that state, they're idolaters. They had no rules for their lives. They were capable of anything. And what they were doing is actually worshiping the pleasure that they received through these sins that they were caught in, that they were living in. Lawless idolatry is the category that everything else could fit into, that really all sin could fit into. And he's saying that the elect exiles Peter is writing to, that they used to be these exact same types of people. They used to be caught in all of these same sins. He didn't highlight them as if they were a theoretical concept that they didn't actually ever experience or were a part of. He's saying, no, 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 I know you guys. These are the things you used to do. Leave them in the past. They were a party to all these same sins. They were just like the people around them still are. There's nothing particularly special about this progression in their lives. They were sinners ruled by their passions, and now they are to put those passions away. That is the eras of the Christian life in its most simple form. And I'm struck as I read these verses how matter-of-factly Peter says these things. He's not astounded by these sins. He's not surprised by them. He's not especially appalled. He doesn't go on and on for pages talking about the horrendous nature of these sins. He just states them as facts that they used to live in and that they should leave in the past. He's not saying that they'll never be real Christians because of what they used to do. He just says, hey, here here are all the things you used to chase. And if you're being honest with yourself, I think that you'll see how you fit into these same sins too. No, maybe not the specifics of all of them for most of you, but maybe. And certainly the idea that you were ruled by your passions, I think all of us would acknowledge that that was us. Even the five-year-old who comes to faith in Christ, he's ruled by his passions before that moment. His passions look differently than the 30-year-old who comes to faith in Christ, but ruled by passions nonetheless. That's all of us. We indulged in our sinful nature, and we are to put that sinful nature aside with its passions in favor of a life that is conformed to the will of God. And I think we have to remember that that is the story of every Christian in all of time. We were dead in our sins. We were ruled by them. We rebelled against God, and we were glad to do so. We actually hated Him, whether we realized that or not. We hated His holiness in our hearts. And then he opened our eyes to see his beauty, to see his goodness, that we might see his gospel and be saved by it when we respond through repentance and faith. So that's when we pass from our passionate past to our passionless present. That's really just the testimony of every Christian ever. So I don't want you to ever think that anyone is too far gone. Everyone who comes to faith in Christ comes out of a past. Everyone who comes to faith in Christ was once ruled by their passions. There is no one that you are seeing in the flesh who is too passionate to be saved. Who is too far gone to repent and believe. Don't you ever think that you have sinned too much to be counted among the elect exiles that Peter is writing to And don't you ever think that the person who pops in your head when you hear all these sins, all this list, don't you ever think that they are too far gone either? Because God can save them just like he saved you because he is in the business of saving sinners. It's actually no more miraculous that he extended grace to you than that he would do the same for them. But now that he's done that for you, you might experience a dissonance, a disassociation with who and how you used to be. Look back at verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. You see, those who are in the passionate past still, they don't always like those who are in the passionless present. They assume that their way of life, their patterns of sin, that they are so normal that when you don't join them in that sin, that you now are the weird one. They're surprised by your weirdness. They don't understand how you would possibly say no to these kinds of things, to these kinds of passions. They're caught in a flood of debauchery. And they can't comprehend someone else not being swept away by that same flood. And so they malign you. They ridicule you. They make fun of you. They might even get angry with you. And you can see this same dynamic in almost every movie, every story, where someone tries to make a change in their life. Their so-called friends are the first ones to tell them to stop. The first ones to pick a fight with the new them that they're trying to be. In High School Musical, the other basketball players are the ones most mad at Troy Bolton for wanting to be in the High School Musical. In Grease, the other T-Birds, they're the ones who laugh at Danny Zuko's new Letterman sweater that he earned by joining the track team. And John Wick, the other hitman, they're the ones that don't think it's possible for him to get out of that life and to stop being a hitman. You see it over and over. And for you, especially if you were the first person in your friend group to come to faith, you might have that same story. That same experience. That, yeah, I stopped partaking in the sins that I used to be a part of. And all my friends started looking at me weirdly. They started talking about me strangely. It started making fun of who I was now and what I was trying to do and be. If you've ever been part of a group where Christians were the minority, then you've probably experienced some kind of this maligning. You see, it's not enough for them to sin. They want you to sin with them. They want you to approve of their sin. And when you don't, even if you just keep your mouth shut, even if you just silently don't partake, they don't like that. So then they attack you. And I think that that's part of the Christian persecution that Peter has been warning these people about throughout his entire letter, over and over, that this is actually part of the persecution they're experiencing already, and it's going to get worse in the coming days. But I think we need to remember what Jesus said about us when we're reviled. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I think this is why Peter has had such a huge emphasis on your conduct being pure, on you being reviled, but reviled for the good that you do, for righteousness' sake. You see, if you're reviled and persecuted on Christ's account then you're blessed rejoice be glad look forward to your reward in heaven and continue leaving those passions that used to rule you in the past you've left that era and you've gone into a new one that's how you should view your present life because that's actually how you prepare yourself for the future That's why your present conduct matters so much, because your present conduct is what's going to affect your future and the future of the people around you. And that's the third era in the Christian life that we'll see in today's text, the compassionate future. Verses 5 and 6. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, They might live in the spirit the way God does. Those who malign you, they will one day give an account. They won't go on maligning forever. They won't continue to be ruled by their passions forever. Either they'll repent from their sins or they'll die, be caught in them and judged for them. But they're not going to continue in them one way or the other. They, just like us, they will have to give an account to the one who is ready and willing to judge the living and the dead. There is no one who avoids that judgment. The living and the dead, spiritually and physically, everyone will one day stand before Jesus Christ in the judgment seat to give an account for their lives. And don't be fooled. This isn't as if you can do well enough to stand up to that judgment one day. This isn't that those who sin will be judged unworthy, but if you try hard, If you do better, if you're able to somehow leave some of those passions behind, that then you'll be fine. On that day, there will be only one acceptable answer, only one righteous account which will save you from that judgment, and that is Christ's. You won't be able to stand before him and say, hey, I was no longer ruled by my passions. I set them aside. I obeyed them perfectly, God. In fact, I even somehow was able to make up for my former lusts with my good works. That is not possible. It's not an option. It will not happen. And even if you thought that it was possible and you tried and really thought that you did it, on that day, you will see that that is not enough. That that's not gonna fly on that day. Your only hope, your only option on that day is to plead the blood of Christ. Say, yes, I was a sinner through and through. I tried to leave my former passions behind, and I failed miserably. I tried to pursue a compassionate future for myself and the people around me, and I failed miserably. I tried to live day by day by submitting my passions to the will of God to pursue what he had for me, and I failed miserably. But Christ has atoned for my sin. He paid the penalty. He substituted himself. He sacrificed himself. He took my sin and died with them. So now my guilt is taken away. Now my guilt no longer counts against me. What I've been given now, what I have now, is the righteousness of Christ. Judge, I have your own righteousness. There's nothing I have to offer you, but I believe that you've saved me by grace, through faith, nonetheless. That is the only answer that is going to work on that day. It's the only way that you could possibly stand up to any kind of judgment. Not in your own power, but in Christ's. When we meet him and have to give an account, the account we need to give is the account of his gospel. And that gospel, that we're saved by his sacrifice and his life, by grace, through faith, that's what we'll plead on that day. And it's also what we are to proclaim now. We proclaim it to those who are spiritually dead and those who are spiritually alive. That's what makes this the compassionate future, which admittedly I think is a a bit of a stretch in my sermon structure, but I think it still works if we uh, allow me to stretch it a little bit. What we do is we preach the gospel. We don't malign our maligners. We don't even look at them with smug contempt, knowing that we somehow are going to win out in the end. What we do is we preach the gospel to them that they might live. We have compassion on them as God has had compassion on us. That though they are like sheep without a shepherd, there is a good shepherd who will go to any length to save his sheep. So for all who believe in this gospel, that we might live in the spirit. This last verse is Peter making a defense of the fact that Christians still die. Evidently, part of the maligning, part of what they were being made fun of for in this time, in this period, was that people were saying, what's the point of believing as Christians do? I mean, they won't shut up about eternal life. They just keep talking about it over and over and all the time. And then what do they do? They all die. The one thing that every Christian has ever done is die. So what's with this eternal life thing? Why believe as they believe? Why not do as we want to do and just always obey whatever passion we have? You're going to die regardless. So what difference does it make? Why not join in the same flood of debauchery, right? If death comes for us all, if it for whatever reason made no difference how we lived because we're still going to die, then why not be ruled by our passion? eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But even for those who are now dead, those who were Christians and then died, the gospel was preached to them while they were alive so that even though they die in the flesh, that they might live in the spirit, as we hope to. To be judged in the flesh the way people are, that's just to die. Because of sin, we experience death. Because Adam and Eve in the garden sinned. Now, death has entered the world and we die. We don't get to avoid that judgment that has been on all mankind since that sin of Adam in the garden of Eden. Not until Jesus returns. But though we still experience death in the flesh, in our bodies, we have the chance at life in the spirit with God. That's the final era for Christians. That is the future that we have waiting for us the life of God in the spirit with God. We were once ruled by our passions and found that they didn't satisfy us. So we repented of our sins. We trusted in Christ for salvation. So now the lives we live in the flesh, they're no longer marked by those same passions for we've put them away. We've now armed ourselves with the thinking of Christ. We've ceased from sin, not perfectly, but aspirationally, that we aim to no longer be ruled by it. To focus on the life that we are to live in Him through Him. And now we preach the gospel to the people around us so that they might have this same experience that we've had. That's how we are able to have compassion on them, how we're able to change their futures as our future was changed. We were ruled by our passions, but we've set those passions aside, and now we live a life of compassion for those around us. I think those are the three basic eras of the Christian life. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to gather with your people, to, to hear your word. But God, thank you most of all for the gospel which has saved us, for the fact that you've called us out of our former passions and into a new life in you. How for us to put those passions away, to let the time that has passed suffice for the sins that we used to indulge in. Help us to move forward in your grace, in your gospel, not only for ourselves, but also for the people around us, that we might persevere through suffering, not only for ourselves as if we were the point of our suffering, but also for them, that they might see through our perseverance the glorious grace that you've given us, the goodness of your gospel, Help us to put away our passions, to live in a passionless present, and to look forward in a compassionate future that we might spread that same message to the people around us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.